And the importance is, is understanding that wisdom exists and it exists outside of you and I, just like math does. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. So joining us from North Carolina, we are talking tonight to C.J. Ortiz, the metal motivator. With over 84,000 people connected to him worldwide on social media through C.J.'s podcast, available through metalmotivation.com, C.J.'s format is an edgy, uncompromising approach to personal achievement and change. A professional speaker, counselor, and life coach with over 20 years' experience, I am pleased and really honored to welcome C.J. Ortiz to The Spark. Welcome, C.J. Stephanie, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I just love that your platform reaches a certain demographic of people who may previously not have been open to hear the kinds of messages you're delivering. What, what inspired you to reach out to that population? Well, I had always done something like this, as you just mentioned in the bio, and in about 2007, I was involved with another life coach helping him with his marketing. And in that process, as he and I were dialoguing, I told him about my personal philosophy of personal development. And he liked it. And he said, you know what, we should do something together. And so that became something called 10 times more. Now, this was before Grant Cardone's 10x rules. So even though it wasn't original with me, I took it from really more the Navy SEALs had this idea of 10 times more. At the end of that year, uh, this gentleman decided to run for Congress. So he was out and he said, listen, this is really your baby, so why don't you take it from here? And by the beginning of 2008, I, I liked the idea of doing something with someone else. And, you know, social media was just really coming into the fore. I hadn't been on it very long myself and certainly wasn't what it was going to become. But um, I had seen someone on YouTube doing something and they'd call themselves sort of a rock and rollish kind of motivator, but it was really more of a punk rock thing. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, if I did this, I would do it heavy metal yeah. because that was my background musically. So I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I just put metal motivation. And within a few months, I started to develop the idea. And then by Halloween of 2009, I actually launched it. But it wasn't simply just my desire to get my motivational content out there. At the same time, you know, I graduated with degrees in communication, so I'd been in advertising and design and marketing and publishing and public relations and branding for the same amount of time as I'd been doing the other. So for me, it was an opportunity to reach this new audience, which was contained on social media, unlike the ubiquitous Internet, you know, where you're waiting for people to search and find you. Social media gave me the opportunity to go direct to market with an idea and see how it worked. So it was really um, the perfect storm. Everything kind of came together at the same time. So that's why I did it. Tell me a little bit about what, what is your metal background or what is the background you have in this kind of music? I was a fan initially. And I, because of my age, when heavy metal really began to invade America, what they call the new wave of British heavy metal, that was in uh, 1981, 82. So that was when I was in high school. So I had already been into hard rock, you know, the typical 
Van Halen, ACDC, you know, the Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix kind of stuff. And so I was ripe and ready for this new thing, this new sound, and it just resonated with me. I think it resonated with my personality, which is really a bit a lot more black and white, a bit more edgy. And once I heard metal, suddenly what I was listening to just didn't sound heavy enough, didn't sound strong enough, didn't sound straightforward enough. And so, um, you know, we got into playing bands and, you know, just did the whole 80s thing because, again, the 80s was coming on then. And so with the 80s came the fashion as well. So whereas long hair and things like that was considered kind of a hippie thing in the 70s, by the 80s, it was a metal thing. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was something that, you know, was just a lot more edgy, colorful and, and metal began to really form itself at that time. So. That's when I started with that music, and it's been the soundtrack of my whole life. And so, the, but the key is to understand it's not just like it's not like somebody else can come out and say, "Okay, I want to do country motivation," or "I want to do <laughs> jazz motivation." <laughs> well, and I guess they could, but the reason metal motivation works is because metal, in and of itself, is motivating. Now, that's yeah. difficult for some people to understand because they tend to think of you know, heavy metal is dark and scary and blood and the devil and or whatever they may imagine it can be. And of course, there's multiple genres of it. So it's not all like that. A lot of it was party music. The thing is, is that, you know, heavy metal has become this international thing. It's middle age, just as I am. And the only way it became what it is when you when you when everybody knows what a band who Iron Maiden is, everybody knows who Metallica is. They sell out millions and millions of of concert seats all over the world every year. The only reason they're able to do that is because they've overcome obstacles. These bands had vision. They had direction. They paid the price. They never got any mainstream support. Nobody cared about heavy metal until even up, you know, the last 15, 20 years or so. Nobody cared for heavy metal until you had Ozzy Osbourne doing reality shows and Gene Simmons and mm-hmm. you started to see these people come on TV, then the mainstream started to embrace it more. Then you started to hear heavy metal at football games and you started to hear heavy metal at uh, for NASCAR commercials, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become more the thing. And then reality TV has now gotten into the, you know, the beards and the tattoos and the, you know, the, the garage thing. And so I think it's just more and more acceptable now, but heavy metal in and of itself, nobody takes, at least none, nobody that I know takes classical music to the gym. You know, they're going to listen to something that has beat that that's heavier, that's edgier, whether it's rock or it's metal or whatever, hip hop. They're going to do something like that. But metal, by definition, you can't hear certain riffs, classic riffs of heavy metal bands and not be motivated. I don't care who you are. Exactly. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, and I think there's something, too, in what heavy metal stands for. And, and I remember in 1985, I lived in L.A. And that was when all mm. of this was kind of coming together. You know, we had you, you'd be someplace like you'd be at the Roxy Theater and you'd have, you know, somebody attending the show. We, you know, it would be somebody from Judas Priest, and you, we had Nikki Six right. hanging out from Motley Crue, and right. and we might have somebody from Christian Death, which was a popular band back then. I mean, it was kind of uh, this wild kind of hair band, heavy metal, even punk scene combined, and it was just yeah. this really thriving, alive time. Yes, so, it was. So there was something in there for me that was. I always just felt. Just like this excitement, this boom that was happening at that at that time. I mean, if you were part of that music scene, it was just huge. So 
you know, even though heavy metals maybe only been 15 years in the popular mainstream, I think it always has been that. It does excite us. Yes. It does motivate us. You know, Metallica just did a international world tour. Now, I remember getting Metallica's first album when I was in high school, and it was just a little demo tape. They weren't anything at the time. And so I haphazardly got it. It was an accident. It was just fortuitous that I actually got it. And I thought they were a punk band at first, but I loved them. <laughs> and so now to know that, you know, you're, you're selling over 100 million records and, and selling out stadiums all over the world and everybody knows who Metallica is now, it's something to be said about just the trajectory of this music. But I told on these guys on the podcast that all you got to do is go to a contemporary Metallica concert and look in the parking lot. And then the cars are much different than they were when I went to Metallica in the early 80s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because yeah. you know, so now there's there's the Range Rovers and, you know, and the SUVs and the what have you. Whereas back then it was just it's eight people piling out of a little Toyota sedan and uh, with smoke blowing out. Exactly. So that was, you know, exactly. that's the way it was back then. So, you know, the this audience has grown with it. And so when I go out to target my audience on social media, you know, I'm targeting people who are like that because yeah. if you again, if you were to look at the parked cars in a contemporary Metallica concert, I could tell you you were at a NFL football game. I could tell you you're at a baseball game and you wouldn't think any different. There's nothing about the cars that would look any different than any other major event. Right. So that means it's very mainstream. It's suburban. The people are from all spectrums, all ages, all income brackets, et cetera. So if that is the case, then a lot of these people would enjoy to have inspirational, motivational content in that framework, in that style. Now, it's not that I get on video or podcast or a platform and start talking like a professional wrestler or something like that. There's no, there's no act to this. Yes. You know, yeah. my hair is long and I may wear the black and what have you, but there's no act to this. I'm, I'm talking on my stuff just the same as I'm talking to you right now. The issue is just, I happen to be a lover of heavy metal. And so that's going to come through. And so I'm not here trying to mine everything I can out of heavy metal music and give it to people. No, it's, it's my content. Right. It just happens to come from somebody who has that persuasion targeted to an audience that the mainstream motivational speakers don't necessarily reach. And that's what I love about it, you know, and I've I've listened to so many of your podcasts. And as I told you, my husband's the one that, that first turned me on to you. And, you know, ironically, one of our first dates was seeing uh, L.A. Guns and Faster Pussycat. You know, this is just uh, like three years ago. So and and so it was just awesome to when he got turned on to you and that's that's one of the reasons you know he was just like he had a passion for heavy metal music and you know the hair music and then you really spoke to him and it wasn't just that you had the heavy metal it was that he was resonating with what you were saying yeah that's a big part of it you know when people ask me oftentimes you know how do you make this work and is you know what what is the actual appeal and and I said, well, you know, it's a number of things. Yes, it's a targeted audience. Yes, it's obviously a differentiated brand, the metal motivator. There's not a many, if any, of those. Mm -hmm. But the content has to be delivered uh, in a way that it's not just entertaining because I don't strive for that at all. I'm all about the information. I'm all about 
you know, trying to genuinely edify and challenge and help people hack what they're dealing with and genuinely improve their lives. So in that sense, it does have to have a level of sophistication. But heavy metal does. Yeah, there's they're the bands like the, the Faster Pussycats, as you just mentioned, which is a kind of more of a straight up rock and roll type set over against an Iron Maiden, for example, that has a 15 minute song, <laughs> you know, that's that may be as complex as classical music. In that regard, I try to combine all of it. You know, I have my sound bites. I have my things that's just more direct vernacular. But then I also have things that are a, a bit deeper and tend to get a little bit more philosophical, worldview oriented, et cetera. And so it's it's a number of these things all working together. But I would be dead in the water were it not for my communications experience. That's really what makes it work from not just the, the speaking, but how it's done, how things are written, how it's promoted, et cetera, especially in the age of social media where everybody and their grandmother is trying to brand themselves and mm-hmm. and be and do and, and uh, you know, find their, their own target audience, et cetera. It just becomes imperative. So I'm, a, I'm at a bit of an advantage in that regard because I do have this communication experience, but this was not intentional. I can promise you that. <laughs> you know, I never saw social media coming. I never saw the Internet coming when I started in communications and, and coaching and that sort of stuff. So uh, I had to adapt along with it just like everybody else. What did you do? Like thinking, I'm thinking back to before you were the metal motivator. You you were were you a life coach at that time? You were um, doing counseling. I, what was what was your background um, in that? Back then, we never really said coaching. We would say mentoring. We would say counseling. Counseling probably more than anything else. And now people may think of counseling today as something therapeutic. Well, you know, I've got to go. I'm a drug addict, so I've got to go see my counselor. I'm a whatever. No, it just it was really more a mentorship sort of thing. Again, what we would call now coaching. But my background was in the spiritual communities. So, you know, it was more uh, religious oriented, but not the denominational type. I mean, obviously not anything like a Roman Catholic or what have you, because I'm not a celibate and I'm not, I'm not a priest. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, you know, kind of, kind of like what you might see on television, where it's, it's just basically like a, it's an inspirational speaker, but they happen to be communicating, you know, directly from religious texts. And so it came from that community where there was a lot more liberty for uh, speakers, a lot more, you know, for whether you are man or woman, because you can go to certain religious denominations and, and women aren't allowed to do anything. So I come from a community community where there was much more liberty for anybody, black, white, young, old, man, woman, it didn't matter. If you had something great to say, there was somebody who was willing to listen to you. And that community understood the necessity for personal development. It was built into their theology, if you will. Right. So they knew they had to continue to improve themselves as set over against now. When I deal with my audiences on social media, it is worlds apart because they don't have that in their life philosophy. They don't have the idea of, let's say, to be discipled as you might be in, in a particular faith or to be made holy or sanctified or whatever religious term you want to use. Those things are built into the doctrine or the philosophy of those respective groups. So they understand you should always be improving. Everybody understands that. And if that's the if that's already built into the people, 
then they're going to go listen to speakers. They're going to buy books. You know what I mean? They're going to attend conferences and events because they want to improve. Now, when you take this to social media and a general audience that doesn't necessarily go to a church or doesn't do anything else, they don't have that belief. So what I find is that people will come to my page to just get daily inspiration. Now, that's good. I obviously put it out there <laughs> so for them to consume, but I'll often tell them, if you're trying to get by, if you're trying to live off of motivational quotes, the only thing you're going to get is a motivational quote will only help you survive another bad day. It's not going to change your life. It might help you feel better in that moment, but it's not sustaining. Right. Exactly. Right. And so if you only listen to inspiration on a daily basis for the sake of inspiration, then it's only going to help you to keep tolerating a life that you don't like. And that's not the goal. The goal should be personal transformation. So to do that, then this audience has to embrace a quote unquote doctrine, if you will, of personal development, that you have an obligation to improve yourself. You have an obligation to maximize all that you are and all that you can do for a purpose that's greater than yourself. And once you embrace that idea, suddenly they say, okay, well, CJ, what else have you got then? Do you do one-on-one -on -one coaching? Do you have a coaching group? Do you have books? Do you do this? Do you do events? Suddenly they're now interested in greater involvement and greater engagement and more instruction because the coin has dropped that they can't get by on motivational quotes alone. And looking online at your life domination coaching, I just found so many areas as a psychotherapist and a self-motivation coach myself. And one of the things that really resonated with me was from one of your live podcasts that just took place on the 4th of February. I'm going to pull that up really quick. What's inside you? Man, it's your calling. It's that most important thing. It's that, it's the, it's that greatest, best use of your talents, of your abilities, of your interests, of your desires. The greatest, most important thing that you could do with your life, that, that's your calling. That's your purpose in life. That's the thing that you're wired to do. Talk more yeah, I, about that. Yeah. I thrive on that. Everything, and this is what's really important, and I just did this in the, my Metal Excellence podcast, as I mentioned, recorded just a couple of days ago with a couple of gentlemen, uh, one guy who co-hosts with me who's a... Um, actually a former member of Delta Force and what a monster of a guy, but he loves heavy metal and uh, <laughs> he's uh, got an incredible message. And so we teamed up and we do a Q&A time. And in this Q&A, someone had asked a question about how to be relevant to your growing kids. He was addressing us knowing that this other guy and myself already have grown children. And he said, well, how do you guys you know, stay relevant and all of that sort of thing? And so these guys offered some practical advice. I just said, well, you know, I want to back up the question a little bit and talk about the larger issue of worldview. Try to imagine a frontier family being concerned about staying relevant to their kids. Try to imagine a family during the colonial period trying to stay relevant to their kids. These are modern issues. And part of the reason is because the kids are not raised with a worldview because people are raised to believe they are individuals. The family is just kind of like a glorified test tube. You're just brought into the world. You go to kindergarten at five, graduate at 18, get the degree and go do whatever you're going to do. So you're an atomized individual and your only identity is really more national or federal. That's why people clamor for rights all the time because they see their identity in terms of the state, not in terms of 
community, family, and that sort of thing. So questions about rights, for example, wouldn't have made sense 100 years ago so much because people tended to seem more community oriented. They were more local. And that, and that was, you know, that was dependent upon survival. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have to step back to look at what, what's the larger reason for anything that we do. And so, as I said, to, in answering this gentleman's question, I said, I taught my kids that they were a part of my trailer park aristocracy. Not that I live in a trailer park, but just to show that it's, you know, I'm not a part of the top 1%, mm-hmm. but I operate similarly in the sense that, you know, everything is based on our little empire, our little trailer park aristocracy. We're thinking about future generations. We, we talk about money. We talk about land. We talk about uh, everybody utilizing their callings. It's a part of our family philosophy. It's a part of our family constitution that we all have a calling. And so because we have a calling, and as I defined it in that little clip you played, it is the obligation you have to maximize all that you are and all that you can do for that greater purpose than yourself. The greater purpose is the empire of your family, in my case, and then to make the world a better place. So it's not just doing what you want to do because you want to do it. It's doing it for a higher purpose. If there's no higher purpose attached, then there's really no reason to sacrifice. Absolutely. Other than a selfish, other than a selfish motive, right? So, yeah. So you get this thing in place philosophically in yourself, your kids, however, uh, whoever's in your life. But your responsibility, your obligation is to maximize your life because you have potential and you have interests, you have abilities, you have desires, you have things in you in which you are irreplaceable. And so people kind of get vocation and calling sort of mixed up. In other words, my calling versus my job. Your calling is that most important thing that you can do with all of your interests, abilities, and resources. Your job is your job. For example, a person can have, you know, just since they were little, have always been able, had an ear for music, always wanted to play music, etc. But because of the music industry or what have you, they're not able to make that their full-time job. But they can't stop playing because that's the most important thing that they can do. That's and so they'll use, yeah, exactly. So they'll use their job to pay for their calling. Mm -hmm. If nobody will pay you to do your calling, then you use your job to finance your calling. You don't get to put off your calling just because you can't pay for it. So like what what you're doing, uh, what I'm doing with podcast, nobody's sending me a paycheck to, to, publish podcasts. Right. Nobody's say, you're not sending me a paycheck to do these stuff, but it's the most important thing I can do. I mean, I can, and I have been, I've served clients, uh, taking care of their communications and what have you. Now, am I replaceable as that person? Absolutely. You could replace me with some other consultant or business coach or whatever to take care of that client's communications needs. I'm not the only one that can do it, but I am the only metal motivator. Exactly. So I'm more, I'm more irreplaceable and it utilizes more of my giftings than just the one. If I'm just doing the communication stuff for somebody, that's not utilizing what I'm doing right now. That's not utilizing the communication, my personal communication, my motivational philosophy. It's not changing anybody's lives. I'm just helping them communicate their message. It's their name on it, not mine. So I'll use then my job or vocation to pay for my calling. I can never... As they would say, I use Bible stuff all the time, but I say, as you know, the Bible would talk about the uh, plowing. Uh, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't take it off. 
Plowing is your calling. You can change fields, but you can't stop plowing. So sometimes people can, you know, they might, like you might say, you know, start doing the radio thing, realize, you know, this really isn't for me. I need to do live events. So you do this for a period of time and just say, you know, it, it doesn't bear fruit. Live events is where I should be or vice versa. You know, so you can change fields, but you can never take your hand off the plow. You got to keep plowing because plowing is your calling. So here's a question that I have for you, because, you know, I, I think about my own experience in working with people and you know, about 15 years ago, I worked at this little Title I school as, as the school counselor. And this is in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And it was at the, you know, literally this little school at the wrong side of the tracks. We serviced uh, six trailer parks, 73% poverty. And so in working with those kiddos, you know, I remember I took a training from this woman, Ruby Payne, and, and her book was A Framework for Understanding Poverty. And so one of one of the things in that book was talking about having a, a poverty mentality and how to break through right. that. Part of my goal was how, how can I help these kids vision a little bit bigger? And I remember my first real experience with that mentality, if you will. And I had just gotten the job and was asking a, a group of actual uh, sixth graders. We were talking about, well, you know, where do you want to be in 10 years? You know, I said, I want you guys just to close your eyes and envision. What do you want to do, be, or have? And, and one, of the, one of the kids said, well, 10 years from now, I want to have my own trailer. And I was like, oh, darling, mm-hmm. I, want you to, I want you to think bigger. I want you to close your eyes and just think yeah. out of the box. And he goes, okay. And he closes his eyes and he goes, yeah, double wide. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So my question to you is, is when some people, as you know, I mean, we all have limits on our belief system. And, th- and that's part of, you know, something I want to talk to you about in a minute, too, about how we have to lean into those parts of us that are uncomfortable sometimes. Our growth edge is oftentimes uncomfortable. But how do you help people with the mindset to open up to what you have to offer? If we're going to go towards our calling, we have to believe that we can do that, right? We have to believe that if I put in this effort, something good is going to happen. I'm going to be able to manifest this. I, I guess I'm curious, how do, how do you break through some of those hard set belief systems. Well, yeah, well, that's certainly progressive. Now, the thing, and I I love the little story that you just told because it resonates with me. I'm really more in the domain of the nonprofit organization more than I am anything else in the sense of how I operate. I have lots of colleagues and what have you and, and people I've seen in the industry. And to them, I mean, they can say all they want, that their programs and courses and things, that they're all out to change lives. But if you have to go through the mental gymnastics of, I've marked this down from 1997 to $997, and you've got 36 hours and the clock is ticking, and you need to get this, and you get bonus one, bonus two, bonus three, bonus four, it's about money. I mean, you can dress it up all you want, and you're not breaking any law by doing that. I'm just saying it's about money. So for me, in dealing with the audience that I'm dealing with, it's very similar to what you just described. I'm dealing with people who they would never understand that. They can't get their heads around that. It's just not. And so I remember, you know, uh, Peter Drucker was writing about the difference between nonprofit organizations and everything else. He says, you know, there's there's basically there's business, there's nonprofit, and there's government. And he talked about how a business will supply goods and services, you know, a government will supply policies and controls. And so like when a business does what it does, the customer buys a product, they pay for it, that's it. If government enacts a policy, 
then they're effective. But a nonprofit is about its product is one thing, and that is a changed human being. So in that sense, we are human change agents. Dealing with the client base that I have, if you want to call it that, the audience that I deal with, they are not all that dissimilar from what you encountered with these kids. They are extremely limited. They, they just don't, you know, they do still live in trailers. Some of them, again, it's all over the spectrum. For example, your husband in one is one, he doesn't live in a trailer, but, (laughs) but a lot of them do, and they don't have this sort of paradigm. They're not thinking, you know, I'm not the guy for the dude who's trying to up his real estate sales. I'm not for the guy who's trying to improve his golf swing. That's not me. I want to transform people's thinking much the same as what you just described is getting them expanding their capacity to believe of what possibilities are and how much capacity they do have. And so it is a gradual thing. And I think we all have to understand that when you say we are all a part of a culture, you know, culture is a word means to cultivate, to bring something out. Right. So agriculture to bring something out of the ground that wasn't there before. The potential is there. If you put that seed in, you can eventually harvest crop. I love so that. I got to, yeah. you know, I have to look at it that way is that I'm these are initially hardened ground. Right. When I first get to them, they are hardened ground. They're bitter. They're angry. Mom mm-hmm. was this way. Grandma was this way. They all lived in, in these dire straits. I'm going to live in these dire straits. Dad was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So they just, you know, uh, I, I'm always going to have to deal with this anger issue because I'm Irish. <laughs> right. You know, all the, right. All the justifications and excuses. Well, those excuses and things will stand until someone comes in from the outside and starts to interrupt and poke at those things. So like a prophet in ancient times would appear out of nowhere. The prophet wasn't there all the time. The prophet was only there when the priest and the king failed. Then the prophet comes on the scene like a prosecuting attorney to upset everybody. So that's kind of my job is I just come into it and I say, well, that's not true. And I isolate it down to very simple, succinct quotes. That's why I use so many motivational quotes. They're the seed that opens up the ground where people, someone says, oh my gosh, that's me. Right. He just described me. Right. So I'll say something like, worry is a form of self-prayer and you make a terrible God. You I know, say, that. oh my God, right. that's me. Or I'll right. say, if you complain about things, but you never change, then you want sympathy, not advice. So it's, it's, it's more than an inspirational quote. It's intended to convict. It's intended to pierce through the membrane of all your justifications and say, wait a minute, man. You can't keep saying you're Irish. You can't keep saying it's because you're black. You can't keep saying it's because you're a woman. You can't keep saying it's because somebody did something to you. It's like things like pain of the past will hinder people. And so I have this like a whole series that I do on getting over the pain of your past. And I said the reason why the pain of the past remains is because your little scales are out of balance. Because we're all wired to think in terms of justice, right? So Lady Justice holds the pair of scales in her hands. Every lawyer's business card has a pair of ancient scales on it. Why? Because justice means that balance is equal. Therefore, if the balance is unequal, then we have injustice, right? So that's this basic symbol for justice and injustice. So when people have 
pain that still hinders them from the past, it's because their scales are out of balance. It's not been equalized. Nobody's apologized to them. Nobody's made up for them. So I'll tell them, listen, let's, let's pretend that a, someone broke into your house, stole all of your goods. I mean everything. Cleaned you absolutely out of the house. Stole your car. Everything. Would you feel violated? Oh, yes. And then you have to, you know, get new stuff and, and get a new car, rent a car, and all the things that you have, the costs you now have to incur, and you feel violated. What a horrible thing it is to be stolen from. But then you hear a couple months later that the person who did all that to you, who stole all your stuff, was arrested. But they had sold off all your goods. They went to the judge, and they got six months to a year. Are you satisfied? No. Absolutely not. The pain will remain because you didn't get anything out of this. And you don't care that he's getting six months to a year. He's going to be out. But let's say the same thing happened. Stole everything you had. And then two months later, he was caught. All of your goods are restored. Okay? Everything is restored. You get everything back. Not even a pen is missing. But because you had to incur those expenses while your stuff was gone, we total all that amount up. And then we tack on 20% just for the hell of it. And this convict or this thief, instead of being thrown in jail, is put to forced labor and has to pay back all the costs that you incur plus the 20%. Are you satisfied now? Now life yes. feels pretty good. Yeah. Right. Because you receive what we call restitution. I'll use these simple analogies to show people, wow, I don't have to stay this way anymore. So the key is to get them in through these initial seed, you're seeding the ground with these initial quotes that are intended to convict and open people up. And then they imbibe a little bit more with these videos and things. And they get used to who you are and, and they learn to trust and, and they learn to, okay, well, I'm, I'm taking seriously what this guy or gal is saying. And then you start working through the larger teachings. Again, I make everything worldview-based. The problem is, is that most motivational speakers will come at you via the door of material success. That's what I mean. My area is more the domain of the nonprofit because I'm dealing with more life issues. I'm dealing with more whatever, but I'm doing it from an instructional didactic standpoint, as opposed to maybe you might do as a therapist one-on-one. -on -one. In yeah. that sense, you're kind of, pre you're the metal preacher, so to speak. But I think our goals are, sound very similar and very in line. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're going to yeah. need to take a short break real quick. But I, I, I do want to tag on, you know, the, the thing that resonated with me when you were saying earlier that, you know, it's a process. It's not something where you're just going to change automatically. This is something as you change a mindset, as you change a negative habit in your life or you want to um, start evolving, if you will, to the next level, it's not just like a light switch. I find myself having these conversations with my clients all the time. It's a process. It's a step-by-step. -step. You show up mm -hmm. for yourself day after day. You take the steps yes. in your own life, no excuses, and right. you start crafting and creating your best life. And it is. It's, it's a timeline. You know, I, I love Bob Prosser, who's a, a motivational Canadian speaker who's been, you know, at it for 40 years. And he says he often gets asked, well, when do I get to be done with this? When do I, you know, like kind of when do I arrive? And he says, never. He said, I, right. I've been doing it for 40 years every day. I show up Absolutely. and I work on myself every day. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're yeah. going to take a break. We're talking with CJ Ortiz, the metal motivator. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Spark on KRFC. 
Hi, this is Sandy Gaines, host of It's Yesterday Once More. KRFC relies on sustaining memberships, sponsors, and underwriters to bring you the sounds and stories of Northern Colorado. Learn more about becoming a member in corporate underwriting at krfc.fm. Next time on The Spark. Someone with schizophrenia has the same genes and chromosomes we've got. There's a tiny little alteration in three or four genes that causes them to have mental experiences that the rest of us don't have. That's the only difference. We talk about demystifying mental illness with Dr. James Kagan, psychiatrist and neurology specialist, and with blogger John Paler, who writes about living with bipolar disorder. Next time on The Spark. Okay, so we're back here at The Spark with C.J. Ortiz, the metal motivator. So I'm curious, what, what challenges did you face growing up or as a young man, and how did you overcome them? My mom was divorced twice. Not her fault. Uh, my original dad, it was, it was his doing. And then my stepfather, uh, much the same way. When my mom remarried, I was living in New York, so I'd grown up in New York till about 13 years old, and we then relocated from New York to Texas in like 1978 or 79. So you want to talk about a culture shock? Yeah. I had no idea, for example, the Civil War was still going on in the South. So nobody ever called me a Yankee. Nobody ever made fun of my New York accent. Nobody ever teased me. But I tell people in, in jest all the time, I said, yeah, you went to school in Watts in California. Well, I w- try going to school in suburban Dallas, Texas. Right, right. <laughs> because it's a di- it's a different kind of abuse. <laughs> that was tough because you know I'm a I was a short little thing and and not much body weight and so there wasn't much to me. But I mean, inside I was a hundred feet tall. But you know, as far as my stature, not very intimidating. And of course, I was this outsider. And that was a challenge for me to have to face because, you know, I was also a, a textbook middle child, which means I was the, the one of three brothers. I was the middle. Mm. So we were all the same gender. We were only about 18 months apart, both. I mean, that was as, as if, at least if I was a girl, I could be the only girl. Right. <laughs> right. But there, I mean, it was just, there was no identity. So my brother was very domineering funny guy, you know, he was domineering and my, my little brother was adorable. It wasn't that I was, my mother mistreated me or anything. It was, it's just the natural effect. If you read about, you know, uh, middle children, oh, yeah, they're, the challenge they're the lost that they, child, right? I mean, the middle child's a lost child. Yeah, they are the lost child. And so what they tend to do is they find identity outside of the family. So, you know, I had to find my identity without anything to rely upon, but my own giftings and abilities. And in that sense, it's advantageous, for example, to where now it's not uncommon, you know, for people who may follow me or whatever on social media that I meet them in person and they could be six, five and drive up in a big old truck or expensive Corvette. And when they're talking to me, their bottom lip will start to quiver, not because they're intimidated by my five foot seven stature, (laughs) but because they're afraid they're going to say something stupid. Those are those little indicators that to me that, you know, I was forced to rely upon things that I knew I had in order to push through all of the difficult years. 
when you're just trying to find identity. You're just trying to, you know, who am I? And so I didn't have any of the spiritual background. I didn't have anything. I was told all my life that, you know, for example, God didn't exist. Uh, but I, I just, I, I never resonated with what I was told. I just said, you know what, I'm going to find out for myself. I'm going to do these things for myself. And so for me, you know, there wasn't serious abuse. There wasn't anything like that. It was just a textbook ex example of the breakdown of the family in modern society post 1970s you know the selfish the self movement of the early 1970s it was just trying to find what i was all about that was tough that was very tough to do but what it did force me to do is to really take inventory of who and what i was what i believed and force me to ask myself what commitment was i willing to take to become everything that i had the possibility to become and that was important, and I don't know why I responded as well as I did, but I, I guess it's because I couldn't rely upon anything else. I think that's the only reason. My family loved me. They would have supported me in whatever I did. It's just, you know, I had already, the, the damage was already done. Yeah. I, was, I did not see them as, as the key to my future. So I had to work my way through everything, and so I ended up being, you know, a self-starter, and I ended up being entrepreneurial and I have been my whole life. So I don't know what it's like to work for corporations. I don't know what it's like to do all that. I've always been self-reliant and sometimes it's hard to explain this to people. The only source of strength and resource you're ever going to be able to truly draw from is your ability to make your way through the world. A lot of people don't have that. And so if there's anything that I think comes from me to the people that I communicate to, it's just that. It's the idea of self-reliance, not to be an island, you know, not to be contra community or what have you. No, to be an active, engaged participant, helping others because it's a balance and the civil government and the things that we need to make our lives work. But it, nothing works. You know, people ask me all the time, what's your political view? And I tell them no political system works without self-government. No matter what you believe, you've got to still have to you have to take care of yourself and those you're, that are with you. You know, that's why a North Korea has to have secret police and cameras in every place because they can't guarantee in a dictatorship that every person is going to do what they're supposed to do. Whether you want, a, you know, a democracy or you want a monarchy or you want this or you want that, nothing works unless people take care of their own stuff. And I just feel like the more we govern ourselves, the less we're governed by others, not just government, but people having to nurse us along all the time. But all of that comes out of that, that past Thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, I, I, I love that story. I can connect with that story a lot. Also, being the same age as you were when my parents divorced, we stayed in the same town. So I, I can't even right. imagine what that was like for you. Everything about your identity, everything about who you were, or maybe who you'd identified you know, with in your family, in your state, all of a sudden here you are, all that right. ripped away and having to discover who you were. It took me two years of high school to get out of high school. Not because I was dumb, but because I was such a rebel. 
And so I didn't pay attention. I didn't care. You know, I was getting high. I was doing whatever. I was going to play rock and roll. And so I didn't get to walk in the gown and the cap. And my mom did not get to see me walk and get my diploma. I, you know, had to do all that afterwards. But it took two years of summer school to get me out of high school. And now, I mean, I've got a 3,000 volume plus library and people will ask me where I did my graduate work. <laughs> so it's, you know. Life. Uh, you did your graduate exactly. work in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's it's one of those things where I always say my my path. People say, well, you know, where did you learn? Where did you do? I say, you know, my path has always been following the footnotes. Always. I just follow the footnotes. It just leads me to more and more things. And I just, so my, you know, my library is very eclectic. And so I'm, I'm broadly read, which is something if, if anybody's listening, who is, I mean, you, you could do this for just your regular life, but also if, if you are in the kind of industries that you and I are in, I would encourage people to read broadly because what I realized is my particular ability is how I look at things. I might look at things differently maybe than someone else. So I'll, so I'll get something out of something you wouldn't normally think. Like I, I, I remember getting so much, for example, because of my longstanding interest in elite groups, like whether it's uh, the Italian mafia or military special forces or intelligence agencies or what have you. I'll glean things. For example, I had a as I shared this philosophy of the family. Well, obviously you see that sort of thing in the Italian mafia as well. It's a much darker version, but I would glean so much about how these, how these things would come out of nothing and thrive and, and produce results and what have you. So there's so much that you can learn from if you read broadly. And so that was, you know, the self-education aspect is never closing your mind. Not that you're uncritical, by all means, be extremely critical. Make yeah. people earn the right to be in your brain, but be open to things. So it's it's been an incredible journey, and that's the best part of the journey for me is the learning. If I lo if I lost that drive, I would truly lose everything. Like in in my coaching group, for example, there's like 650 plus videos yeah. that have been produced so far. People say how it's the overindulgence of intake. The word prophecy, for example, in the Greek means to bubble forth, you know, so mm -hmm. the prophets would, would get so filled, if you will, that they would, with spiritual thing, they would start to bubble forth. It would start to come out, you know, much like when you're filling a glass or something with carbonated soda. If you do it too fast, it bubbles over, you know, so that's what prophecy is like. If you're not putting in a whole lot of things then there's nothing to bubble forth. So eat all that you can, drink all that you can. I mean, I'm speaking you know, metaphorically here just yeah. of, you know, the kind of material, but you can learn from anything and anybody. I mean, I, for example, I tend to, the older the stuff, the better it is, in my opinion. I'm not all that crazy about the contemporary things. I'll read them, I'll check them out, what have you. But like, for example, when I teach people how to speak, I'll tell you, listen, you want to learn to speak well, then I would encourage you to read old books, at least 100 years old. Let them be academic of sorts. It could be fictional literature, but that's got so much dialogue in it. It's not just prose. But you want to read well-written prose, at least 100 years old, because the writing was so much better. 
And the importance is, is understanding that wisdom exists and it exists outside of you and I, just like math does. You know, two plus two equals four, even if you and I aren't there to think about it. So wisdom is there no matter what. You know, my daughter came downstairs one day and she was just kind of sharing her heart. She had been kind of disappointed as of late. And as the conversation continued, she she said, you know, Dad, I just I, don't, I just feel bad that I'm disappointing you. And I said, sweetheart, why would you say that? I don't I am not overbearing. I do not make anybody do what I do. But what can happen is because you're very consistent with what you do, you might as well have <laughs> because people, people kind of feel bad being around you in the sense, well, oh, I'm not up as early as he is. I'm not working as long as he is. I'm not doing as many things as he is. So I must not be as good and he must see this and he must be disappointed in me. And I tell her, I said, listen, you're loved unconditionally. Your father loves you no matter what. But if you, if you are interested in impressing me, <laughs> Um, what you can do is fall in love with wisdom. Do that because wisdom is true regardless. And wisdom is what governs us. Wisdom is what we are to treasure because it is. It's true all the time, just like math. That's what creates a profitable life. That's what creates a successful life. That's what creates an enjoyable life. Love wisdom. Go after that. Dig it up, as it says. Dig it up. Search for it like it's a hidden treasure. You'll find, it says, the knowledge of God. You know, you'll find what it is you're truly looking for, the answers you're looking for. As many as we can understand this side of the grave, it's going to be found in wisdom. And wisdom is simply judgment in the matters of life, sound judgment in the matters of life. And if your life is a mess and you don't see any way out, the best thing is right decisions from this way forward. Things may not turn out as you like exactly, but wisdom will always minimize the damages. Just start making right decisions. I think the problem becomes we personalize life too much. And so you, you hear this in people. They think that, you know, life is out to get them. The universe is just allotted them for failure. Or there's a dark force that's against them, and it's just a fate from which they cannot escape. And for people who claim that, their only evidence of the fate they cannot escape is their past. They have no other resource. They have no other book to appeal to that can prove that their future is going to resemble the past other than the past. So I'll tell them, well, if you're so convinced about the way your future is going to turn out, guess what? The future hasn't happened yet, so you might as well change it. It's all so fantasy, right? It's all fantasy. Whatever you're projecting into the future, yeah. whether you project something wonderful or, like you said, you're inferring from your past that may be negative, it's all fantasy. And that's the cool thing about fantasy is we have a choice. We can choose yes. a better fantasy. Yeah, you can watch a different channel if you want to. People don't do that. And so that's, I think, going back to, you know, what do we do to help get people ready to believe for more, to do more and be more and what have you. The deeper you get into personal development, you've got to get into visualization. You've got to get into the power of imagination. You know, my second son is a filmmaker. And I remember when he had graduated high school. And he was, he, I mean, he was 4.0 and all this stuff. And so we thought, everybody's like, he's going to go to college, right? We talked to him about it. And he said, no. And he, he had never, I don't think I've ever spanked that kid. Now he's 28 now, but I, I don't think I ever spanked. He's just, he's the, he just, he would come home, eat a snack, do his homework, but then he'd watch TV and play video games or whatever. But for him, he was watching things, not just for entertainment. He was memorizing things. 
by the time he was ready to maybe go to college, he said, Dad, I don't, I don't want to go to film school and study three years of the history of Italian film by people who don't make movies. And I understood that, you know what yeah. I mean? Because I've never met the runway model who has a PhD in runway modeling. You know, it, it mm -hmm. comes down to what your portfolio looks like. It's the way it was for me as a, as a designer. It's the way it is for somebody who works in that industry. So I said, I understand. But in our conversation about that, I said, well, there's one thing I, I would be I encourage you to do. His name is Joe. I said, the one thing I would encourage you to do, Joe, and that is to study how to activate the imagination. Because the difference between a blockbuster summer superhero movie <laughs> and a Stephen King novel is about two inches. The blockbuster has to pay $150 million to create this thing for your physical eyes. All the pyrotechnics and the special effects and the actors and all that sort of stuff. The novelist doesn't have that. The novelist goes two inches to the right and attacks your brain with visual images. But you can be completely engrossed in that book. You can enjoy the book. As you often hear people say, I like the book better than I like the movie. Right, because the movie is, it it's passive. Yeah, it's passive. So it, you know, so it just goes to show you that also your imagination cannot tell the difference. Your body, can, or should it say it this way, your body cannot tell the difference between imagination and real. So, you know, that's why you can worry yourself to death. That's why you can, you can be in your bed at night and just, you hear a sound or whatever, and you start thinking, is somebody in the house? And you know, you just, the shadows look weird or whatever. Well, what will happen to your body? Your heart rate will go up. Your body temperature will go up. You'll start pulling those covers a little closer to your chin. Your body is reacting to something that's not even there. It's just the coat rack. So it doesn't understand the difference between them, which means then your mind has this creative power. We're not even getting into what it can touch in the actual physical world in terms of energy, just what it can do to you. Yeah. I said, tell people this way. I'll say the, the power of belief or doubt is based upon when what you see with your mind's eye is more real to you than what you see with your physical eye. Then you'll understand the power of belief. Believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. Exactly. Well, or, or tell people, they'll say, well, you know, yeah, yeah uh, seeing is believing. And they're like, exactly, exactly. They'll, but the, what they mean is if I see it with my physical eyes, I'll believe it. No, seeing is believing. When you see it with your internal eyes yes. to where the outside world no longer affects you like it used to, now you're stepping into a higher dimension of personal transformation. We're just not, we're not getting over bad habits anymore. We're not, we're not just dealing with negative thinkings. We're turning you into a superhero. You are such a delight to talk to, CJ. I've just absolutely oh, enjoyed visiting with you and would love to have you on the show sometime again in the future. I want to yes. give the audience some information. The website is metalmotivation.com and the podcasts are Metal Excellence and Keep It in the Family and also CJ's online life coaching. It's a life domination series. Thank you, yeah. CJ, so much. Thank no, you for sharing well, thank you. your life, your wisdom, and this time with us. It's my pleasure. I'm honored to be here. So in my conversation with C.J. Ortiz, the metal motivator, 
I really found that he used that platform as a way to reach a diverse population. And his message, which is beyond that population, so it's not just the metal population, it's beyond, is how we can become our best selves. And through that, through his coaching, through his podcasts, through his videos on YouTube, I think really he wants to go beyond just inspiring people, but giving people the information that they need and the tools so that they can access the parts of themselves then that will create the kind of life that they truly desire, what's going to be more fulfilling, and to help them go beyond their present difficulties. I, I think one of the things that I appreciated about his style too is that it's also, we, we kind of hear this over and over from a lot of our guests, that there's no excuses, that we need to step into whatever change we want to make in our lives. So it's up to us. And there are so many resources out there, whether it's books, whether it's video, there, there are so many different ways that we can access the tools that we all need. And, and the thing is, I think the important piece is that we all need this. There's not one of us that are exempt from this journey called life. And so if we show up for ourselves and we do whatever it is that it takes to take us to the next level, and that always doesn't have to be a huge level. I think one of the C things CJ was saying is it doesn't have to be about monetary gain, that everybody wants to be in the 1%. I don't think that's it. You know, I read a lot of books, whether it's Tony Robbins or Brendan Burchard or Gary Vee, you know, the, these guys who are huge entrepreneurs and I respect very much for the area that they're in. And yet at times I feel like it's missing something because not everybody's journey is going to be to be the 1%, you know, or the 5%. I think that's part of the important piece of coming back and taking our own inventory and seeing what is it in my life that's important for me, the areas where I want to grow, the areas that help me feel more alive, more impassioned, more connected to the world around me. And those are the places I think it's important that we focus on and focus on growing. Because as we grow those pieces, those are the pieces that in turn help heal and grow the world, help, help other people connect, help other people get in touch with their own humanness. So there's a quote from Mother Teresa where she, this is my you know paraphrase, but basically she's saying, we can become through healing ourselves, we then become that pebble in the pond and our healing is the concentric circles that reaches out then to the rest of the world. That is a lot of what I got from CJ. As we work on healing ourselves, um, we also help spread that to the greater world. You've been listening to The Spark on KRFC. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions about one of our topics, feedbacks on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thespark at krfcfm.org. The Spark is produced by KRFC in Fort Collins, Colorado, and airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. on 88.9 FM and streaming online at krfc.fm. Past episodes can also be found at krfc.fm. While at our website, you can also hear a number of other community and music programs from KRFC Network. 
To make sure you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life.